We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. This morning is going to be a little different than our uh, maybe typical format. We don't use PowerPoint all the time, except for perhaps when missionaries come to visit. But um, one of my goals in the next few months, uh, along with uh, the expositional teaching we're doing Sunday evenings through the book of Ezra right now, is to uh, here and there, perhaps once a month or so, as the Lord permits, uh, walk through uh, what is my personal doctrinal statement. I want to make that clarification uh, before we go any further that this is not necessarily the doctrinal statement you'll find at you know fbcaa.org, our church doctrinal statement. Uh, this is my doctrinal statement. But uh, you'll find that it uh, most uh, often doesn't deviate too far from you know what uh, the church doctrinal statement says, really, if anything, it's just a wording different than anything else. Um, uh, certainly, you know, I fall in line with what our church doctrinal statement states. And uh, perhaps if you're a member or perhaps when you first came to the church, you did look through that doctrinal statement on the church website. If you have not, I would encourage you to do that at some point. It's good to be familiar with that. And uh, as Pastor alluded to, some of the purpose of me doing this and us looking at this together is for your edification, uh, Lord willing, and also for my preparation as uh, we prepare for a ordination in the future, Lord willing. And so uh, my desire in this is, again, for you to be edified. And one of the ways I think that can happen is by not me just reading this and, and sharing some of the scriptures that go along with it, but also allow for some interaction, and uh, we may leave that, at f this morning at least, for the end, just uh, for the sake of time. I'm not sure how long it's going to take to get through it, being our first time doing this, but I'd love for any interaction at the end to take place, uh, questions you may have about certain statements. Um, if you've ever sat at an ordination or anything like that, you know that there is that kind of interaction, and... Um, and so I welcome that, any questions you may have, pushback or whatever you want to say. And uh, if I can bring any more clarity to what's written there, uh, I'd like to do that. Um, as I say that, I also just want to add that, um, you know, you may kind of look at this and say, you know, this is, sounds very heady, very theological. You know, what practicality does it have? Um, but if you read through the scriptures, and especially First Timothy, which... Um, we were able to look through in the last months here on Sunday evenings primarily. Uh, scripture has a lot to say about doctrine and the importance of it. And in fact, that was one of Timothy's responsibilities as he stayed in Ephesus was to teach the pure doctrine um, that was being um, kind of uh, you know, fought against and, uh, and subverted. And so uh, it is very significant uh, for the stability and unity of a church as we look at doctrine and we study what the Bible says and we come to a kind of unified decision of this is what we believe the scriptures to be teaching. 
And uh, that helps in our personal walk with the Lord as we study God's Word out. We can understand Scripture uh, in a kind of summarized fashion. You know, what does is, what is the Bible teach in summary about X, Y, or Z? You know, what does it teach about the church? What does it teach about the Scriptures? What does it teach about sin, Christ? And so doctrinal statements are a wonderful way to kind of summarize Scripture and the whole teaching of a certain kind of topic in Scripture or doctrine. Um, but along with that, though, when we, when we understand doctrine, it doesn't only affect our head, meaning the facts and things we know, but if we allow, you know, as pastors have said, allow it to go from our, our head to our heart, uh, it begins to change not just our thinking but our behavior as we understand who Christ is and what he's done for us, what the Bible teaches about all matters of life and how it should govern and rule our life. And so uh, doctrine is not just about you know, theological facts. It's about uh, affecting and transforming our heart as we better understand the whole of Scripture as we look at it in parts. So this morning, uh, we're going to start with uh, the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures. Often this is where doctrinal statements will start. Some start in uh, addressing other doctrines to begin with, but this seems like a good place to begin. And I wanted to start by just uh, reading for you, it's up on the screen, uh, a somewhat of a doctrinal statement or a creed or confessions you've probably heard of. These are all kind of doctrinal statement-like uh, uh, d- uh, documents. And so this is a common one. Perhaps you've read it before. You're familiar with it. And it's just one example of a very kind of summarized doctrinal statement, uh, the one that I've created and am working on creating is much more expanded in certain areas, but this is a good uh, summary of, of what uh, people have said they have believed in the past and what we accept as well today. And so it says, I believe in God the Father uh, Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Ghost and Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate and buried. The third day he rose from the dead He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come to judge and quick and the dead. Judge the quick and the dead. And is the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the everlasting life. Excuse me, the life everlasting. So that's just one, again, very uh, synthesized kind of doctrinal statement, really revolving around Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Um, but what we're going to be looking at again in the next few months, Lord willing, is more expanded than this. And so let's uh, jump into this now as we begin our time this morning, starting with the Holy Scriptures. And I've broken down uh, my doctrinal statement in this area, as far as the Holy Scriptures go, into different kind of uh, paragraphs, beginning with inspiration and divine authority in regard to the Holy Scriptures. So I'm going to read this for you, and then I have on a few slides some of these verses that I've pulled out from the doctrinal statement. I begin by saying, I believe the Holy Scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, to be God-breathed, in the sense that the Holy Scriptures originate in God. I believe that God superintended holy men of God to write the Holy Scriptures so that all of Scripture, including the very words of Scripture, is without error in the original manuscripts. This belief is often referred to as verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. 
As a result of, of the superintending work of God and divine inspiration, holy scriptures possess divine authority in all matters of faith and practice and any other subject which it touches so that to disbelieve or disobey any part of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. And so uh, this is one way in which you can summarize what the inspiration of Scripture means and how we believe it to have divine authority because it is the Word of God. Inspiration, you're probably, uh, maybe you're not so familiar with that word, but you probably are familiar with 2 Timothy 3.16, which says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally meaning God breathed, breathed out by God, and that it originates in God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And one of the reasons why we're talking about this is because it is profitable for doctrine and for thinking on, challenging our thinking and our behavior. Second Peter 1, 19-21 says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, meaning it didn't originate ultimately from man. Rather, holy men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about divine inspiration, we believe that uh, scriptures ultimately originate with God, yet there is a dual authorship. There is a man that's, that has written and recorded uh, what God has revealed to him, but there is one meaning behind the text still. There's not you know, a meaning that God intended and a meaning that you know, Ezra intended or Paul, though there's two entities involved, God and, and, and a man, uh, there we believe, maintains one meaning in the text. And we take this from passages like Second Peter 1, 21, that says, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The idea there is kind of like a ship being moved across the sea by the waves and by the wind. Um, and in that way, God spoke through uh, certain men to record his divine revelation, which we have in the 66 books of the Bible today. Another verse uh, that relates to the divine inspiration and uh, divine authority, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Paul writes, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. And so focusing kind of on that last uh, clause there, they are the words that Paul has written. You know, he's not denying that he was the one that wrote them. But ultimately, they are what? Not the commandments of Paul simply, but the commandments of the Lord. And so Paul writes with this kind of, uh, we might say, consciousness of the fact that what he's writing is really the words of God, not just his own. Isaiah 8, uh, verse 20, says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them context of this passage being is, you know, if there's a, a word that comes from a prophet or someone else that does not accord with, with what, is to be, what is believed and accepted as divine truth, uh, it should not be accepted. 
uh, should be rejected because it doesn't accord with what has been accepted as God's divine word. There is no light in them. And then John 17, 17, very familiar, especially I'm sure to you kids out there, probably have memorized this lately. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So we talk about divine authority. God's word has authority. It is true, and it is to be believed as that. The next kind of section in the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures that I have called out is the inerrancy and infallibility of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, you may look at those two words and say, wow, you know, that's not in my common vocabulary. I don't use that every day, and that's certainly the case. But if you want to break the word down, both those words uh, kind of to the root there, uh, inerrancy simply means it is without error. There is no error in Scripture. Um, and so we believe that to be true because it is God's word. It's not the other way around. We don't believe it to be God's word because it is inerrant. It is inerrant because it is God's word. You see kind of the, how, how we should look at that more properly. We're not trying to prove that God's word is God's word because it doesn't have error. No, it's without error because God spoke it. He breathed it out. Infallibility simply means it cannot fail. All that it says will and has come to pass in some sense. Certain, obviously, prophecies haven't yet been fulfilled, but we know that they will because it is God's divine revelation. And so all that he has said, uh, all his promises will come to pass. There is no part of it that will fail. So uh, we read then this section on uh, the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. It says here, I believe on the basis of Scripture's divine authority that every word and part of the Holy Scriptures uh, to be inerrant and infallible. The inerrancy of the Holy Scriptures extends to every word in both the Old, New, Old Testament and New Testament. The Holy Scriptures are necessarily without error because of their divine origin and will eternally accomplish their intended purpose. The Holy Scriptures are trustworthy in every part and remain in their written form as the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. We'll look at a few verses now on this subject, pulling from, uh, from the doctrinal statement there. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. Uh, they are perfect. They are without error. Like silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Don't get caught up uh, by you know, the seven. Uh, I think simply it just means you know, it, is, it is refined you know, to the purest extent because of the multiplicity of it. God's word is pure, it is without error. Hebrews 6, 18, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Uh, really, we're focusing on that second kind of clause there, prepositional phrase, in which it is impossible for God to to lie. He cannot lie. Therefore, we can, on that basis, say that all of Scripture is true. It is inerrant, without error, because of God's divine uh, nature, his essence, who he is, uh, does not allow him to lie. 
that's, uh, you know, in a very practical kind of way, that's, that should be reassuring, bringing us much confidence that uh, if God has said he will do this, he will do it. Despite the circumstances, how I feel God is working, how I feel God is, you know, in this situation, or not, maybe you feel, we must rest assured that God cannot lie. If he has promised, you know, that no temptation can overtake us, then we have to believe that, that there is a way of escape. Becky, it seemed like maybe you had a question. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm going to be honest. I'd, I'd have to look back at verse 17. I, I looked at it whatever, the other day, but uh, I don't know. Maybe Pastor has off the top of his head or wants to pull it up real quickly. Or one of you in the... Uh, congregation here if you want to pull it up I'll try to flip there good question though verse 17 uh, all right, let me begin in verse 16. It says, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all disputes. Thus God, determining to show them more abundantly to the heirs of promise and the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay, hope, lay hold of the hope set before us. Um... Go ahead. So, look at verse 13. God made a promise to Abraham, and then he confirmed it by an oath. So, the first immutable thing is God made a promise. Hmm. You can't undo God's promises. And then on top of that, he swore an oath. Double guarantee. Yeah. Almost redundant. Yeah. Thank you. For those on, on uh, watching, uh, probably didn't hear all that. So Pastor called us back to verse 13, which says that God made a promise, and then he also made an oath, uh, just further confirming what was to be the case. So thank you for that help. It's uh, helpful to understand that context in light of what we're talking about, uh, God not being able to lie in the inerrancy of Scripture course, uh, you know, you'll note that there was a lot, there's a lot of scriptures that I have built into the doctrinal statement. We don't have time, unfortunately, to get to it all, um, but I would encourage you to uh, look those up or find others that uh, prove these statements to be true, or might I say it the other way? We look at scripture, and then we come to a realization that these things are true. We're not just simply searching scripture to find, you know, a verse that backs up what I think to be, you know, right preservation of the Holy Scriptures. I believe that the Holy Scriptures have been preserved by God's providential care through the multiplicity of manuscripts and textual witnesses so that we can be assured that we have an accurate we have accurate copies and translations of God's authoritative authoritative word today. While no copies or translations are without copyist error, I believe that scripture 
has been preserved through the multitude of extant manuscripts, versions, and other writings. The Holy Scriptures may not be continuously available at any particular time and place, nor is there any single copy that can claim divine inspiration. The accuracy of translations is not the result of God's uh, superintending work in copyists or translators, but the due diligence of translators in the propagation and translation of the Holy Scriptures. I believe that there is a multiplicity of translations today that accurately reflect the meaning of the original manuscripts. There's a lot there, uh, a lot to talk about, but if I can summarize it in this way. We talk about God's uh, preserving his word. We don't accept the fact that there was some kind of supernatural way in which God preserved his scriptures and that, you know, there's, there's one, you know, uh, you know, God, let me just put it this way. All of the original manuscripts uh, are, don't exist today. We don't have, you know, the original paper or, or you know, whatever a scroll that was written on by Ezra or, you know, or by, you know, David. And so God didn't supernaturally preserve those, you know, original manuscripts so that, you know, we have those today to, you know, translate into English, translate into Spanish, you know, translate into, you know, French or whatever. Um, and so we don't, we don't believe that God, you know, supernaturally preserved the originals, uh, but rather he used providential means that is, he used faithful men throughout history to copy God's scripture, to translate it into the languages we have today from the original languages, so that we can say with confidence that we accurately have God's word and the meaning of the original manuscripts in a variety of translations, which is a blessing to have. Uh, and that said, we don't, you know, I don't take uh, this view, and I know the church does, that God's word is... Uh, preserved only through one translation. For instance, the King James Version. Uh, we, don't, we don't take that view whatsoever. Uh, we believe that God uh, has given us uh, through, uh, through manuscripts from you know, copyists throughout history that we can look at in the original languages, not the originals, but copies of, of the originals, so that we can look at it, study it out, and with due diligence uh, propagate and, and create... Uh, translations that accurately uh, reflect the meaning of the original manuscripts. There's a lot in this. I want to just pause at this point to see if anyone has a question uh, because of just the extent of what's there. Any, anyone have any thought or question? All right. If you do, we can talk about it later, too you'd like. So Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 20, it says, Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandments, commandment to the right hand or to the left and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. And so we see even here in Deuteronomy chapter 17 the, the importance and really even the responsibility to make a copy of God's law so that it can be preserved for generations to come, so it's not lost. And so 
this in, in this sense, then, we see God providentially preserving his text through ordinary means, the due diligence of men through history who feared the Lord and sought to preserve it by making copies of it. Um, one more thing I'll just say. I don't have it noted there. I have this statement uh, about halfway down. The Holy Scriptures may not be continuously available at any particular time and place. What I really mean by that is that there are times in history where uh, you know, God's law was you know, seemingly lost, we might say. You know, think of the time when, uh, uh, now his name is escaping me, the, the priest, uh, Hilkiah, right, who found the book of the law. And so it seems that for a time it was not being read, it was not uh, you know, available uh, in, in a sense to the general public, it was lost somewhere in the temple. Hilkiah found it, and then he brought it, and it was read before the people. You could also make the, oops, uh, the case from this, too, that uh, in saying this, that it's not available at any particular time or place, even today in the sense that not every person has God's word available to them. Uh, you know, In their own translation, or even just generally, even in English or whatever language, and so, you know, that is part of the work that a pastor is doing and others to make that more available so that in any place, Lord willing, it is available to them to read, though that is, you know, a challenge, and, uh, but we're seeking to, to do that by God's grace. We move on to uh, the illumination and, and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, the illumination of the believers, uh, something that I found interesting, and I did a study on it probably almost two years ago uh, in the men's prayer. And uh, if you find it somewhat confusing or like to talk more about it, I'd be happy to do that. I know Pastor would be as well, but I hope to bring some clarity in uh, the doctrinal statement here about uh, the Spirit, Holy Spirit's work of illumination. I say here, I believe that both the non-believer and believer can arrive at an accurate interpretation of the text. Now, hold on to, you know, to your horses before you uh, get uh, upset about that. I believe that both the non-believer and believer can arrive at an accurate interpretation of the text, but only the believer is able to embrace the truth and authority of the text as a result of the Holy Spirit's work of illumination. What I mean by this I, I do sincerely hold to this, that a non-believer can read God's scripture and can arrive at an, at an accurate understanding of what the text means. You know, uh, the unbeliever isn't, you know, foolish in the sense that, you know, they, they, have, the, uh, they have the capacity to, to think and to understand. At the same time, they cannot embrace the significance and the truth of that text. They can say, yes, I believe that Jesus lived on earth. I believe that he died on a cross. And I believe, you know, that he was seen, you know, by hundreds of witnesses. Someone can say that and believe that fact without embracing that as the truth in the sense that how it affects their heart and mind. You know, they can say, I believe he came, but I don't believe he's the son of God. I don't believe he's the Lord of my life. You know, I don't believe he's going to come again and reign. Um... And so, in a sense, a non-believer can arrive at an accurate interpretation without embracing the significance or the truth of that text, which is the most important thing, is it not? To embrace it as the truth and to accept it as authority over our lives. 
I believe that although the interpretation of one text can have multi uh, multiple applications, any given text contains but one meaning. This hermeneutical practice is formally called exegesis. So we're looking at the text, we're seeking to expose the meaning of the text, not read into the text, you know, whatever meaning we like, you know, whatever sounds good for that day, you know, whatever trial we're going through, we kind of just, you know, read into the text and answer for that problem. That's not, that's not how we should properly read and understand the text. It is the interpreter's responsibility to study the text in its plain grammatical, historical, cultural, and literary context in order to correctly interpret the text as the original author intended it to be. All that said then, non-figurative passages are to be interpreted literally. In figurative passages where authors use figures of speech, uh, bear a literal truth that the original author was specifically revealing through that figure. So we're not denying when we say, you know, we take, we, we read the text literally. That's not to say that we don't accept the fact that authors at times use figures of speech, metaphor, uh, even types at some points uh, to, to teach a truth. But there is a truth in that text that the author intended. And so we have to arrive at that and uh, again, not just pick whatever meaning we like. So uh, we have to interpret text in that, the text in that way. First uh, John 2:20. Uh, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. We just got done reading through First John on Sunday mornings here. Uh, this is really speaking to the illumination side of things that God's Spirit has illuminated believers, given them the ability to embrace the truth and the significance of it. Uh, and First John 2.20 teaches us this truth, that uh, we have this anointing and so that we can know all things. That doesn't, doesn't mean we have the excuse to never study Scripture. That's not what uh, John's saying here. He's saying that you have the ability to embrace the significance of all of God's Word. Uh, you, you know all things. You know the truth of God's Word, and you're able to embrace it and submit to it because of the Spirit's work. 1 John 2.21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. And so again, we have this assurance that God's Spirit is at work in the believers so that we know the truth. That doesn't mean we know everything about Scripture. We still have to study it. There's things we haven't maybe learned from Scripture because of our age or experience or when we came to know the Lord. But when we read it, whether it be for the tenth time or the first time, if you're truly born again, you will, uh, you will embrace the significance of, of the word as the truth. That is certainty. 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, in my speech and my preaching were not with, with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so um, when the, the uh, believers in Corinth received uh, Paul's words, words, they didn't receive it as the truth because of human wisdom, his persuasive language, you know, how good of an expositor he was. Rather, they accepted it uh, because of this, the work of the Spirit uh, and the power of the Spirit working in them. 
so that your faith uh, was not or should not be in the wisdom of God, but in the power of God, God working in them to receive it uh, and embrace it as the truth. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16, but the natural man, this is probably a familiar verse when it comes to talking about um, the, uh, the inspiration or illumination and, and uh, interpretation of Scripture. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Again, I don't take that to mean that they can't arrive at an accurate understanding, but they are foolishness to him. You see that? They don't embrace it as the truth. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, which enables us, if I can add on to that, to understand and to accept God's word as the truth and embrace the significance of it in our lives as it applies to our daily walk with the Lord. Oops. Uh, move on then to canonization of the Holy Scripture, which simply has, uh, speaks about the process of God's Word uh, being brought together into one canon, the recognition of the 66 books of the Bible that we have today. I say I believe that the preservation of... Uh, that preservation is a corollary of inspiration and that the 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament preserved are the same ones that were inspired, simply meaning that uh, these, uh, these 66 books that we have today are the ones that originally were divinely uh, inspired when they, uh, when they were written. I believe that no... Uh, typo there. I believe that no scripture conclusively pr proves the identity of the biblical canon. I believe that each of the 66 books which we have today were recognized as canonical from their origin by the original audiences and believed to be the inspired authoritative words of God. The process of canonization entailed no more than a recognition of the books which believers already believed to be the truth. I believe that the canon is closed, that is, no books should be added or taken away, uh, and, will re and will remain closed. It will always uh, be, as we have it today, the rule of faith. Uh, we don't add um, and we don't open it up for new revelation. Um, what, I, what I really want to draw from this is that, you know, I don't know how you've studied this in the past or what you've been taught, but... We don't accept, or at least I don't accept the view that there was, you know, any one council of men that that choosed or decided, you know, this one but not this one. What they were really doing is, if I can put it in a very kind of summary fashion, they were recognizing as canon what was already accepted by believers to be the truth. And so really it was, maybe this isn't the best way to put it, but more of a formality, <laughs> And that these were already embraced, being embraced as the truth, and they were just recognizing that, not choosing, not deciding, you know, which one, but simply recognizing what had already been accepted to be true. That these 66 books were uh, those books which originally were written under divine inspiration. 
1 John 2.27, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Uh, really, I take from this just kind of uh, focusing on the second clause, and you do not need that anyone teach you. Um, but as then the same anointing teaches you concerning all things. And so, in a sense, then, we can say that those original audiences, when they received the word of God, written by whatever author, you know, Paul or someone in the Old Testament, they immediately received it as the truth. Uh, they recognized its divine authority and inspiration. John fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Uh, context here, uh, Jesus is speaking to his, his disciples, who would go on to then write God's uh, divine word. And so in that sense, we, you know, we don't have to be afraid that, oh, maybe there was something that God intended to be included that wasn't, or that uh, you know, the apostles would go on to write things where that were not God's word. No, that is certainly not the case. Uh, they would, um, the Holy Spirit, the helper, would bring to remembrance all things that I said to you, that is said to his disciples, and they would then go on to record that. And that would have divine inspiration. And we have it now today in the Bible. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word which I command you. So this is speaking to the closed nature of the canon. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. So this, you know, we might say speaks to the Old Testament, you know, closed canon portion. And then Revelation 22.18-19, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Probably a very familiar text to some of you. Moving on, just for sake of time, quickly here, um, I have here... It's kind of more of a formality, but typical of a doctrinal statement. I include all 66 books of the Bible, so there's no ambiguity of what I believe to be uh, God's inspired word. We don't. Uh, maybe one of you kids out there could quote it from memorization. I won't ask you to do that at this point. And then I close here with just a few rejected views on the Holy Scriptures, really looking out uh, in our day and ages and saying, what are some of the main line views that uh, deny something that I believe to be true about the Holy Scriptures. And I want to I emphasize those so that if there's any question about what I believe or what I don't believe, I have it here in my doctrinal statement. There could be more added to this, but uh, these are some of the, the main ones that came to mind. I reject any view that denies the historical accuracy of any one event in the Old Testament or New Testament. Uh, you know, if you want to Take one, one example, simply you know, Genesis chapter 1. Is a historical account of how the earth came to be, the universe came into existence. And uh, we don't take it to be allegory or poetry uh, or any kind of other view that denies the historical accuracy of the seven-day creation week or any other events. 
like the flood. I reject any view that believes that the canon is still open, that, it, that is, that new divine inspiration or revelation is coming today to any one particular person or group or entity. Uh, it is closed. I reject any view that believes that new divine revelation is still re- received. Uh, I reject any view that believes only a certain translation is the inspired Holy Scriptures, for instance, as we noted earlier, like the King James Version. Uh, not, to, not trying to hark on that necessarily this morning, but just uh, for uh, an example. I think that brings us to our close of our time this morning. We are a few minutes over. Um, so if you do have a question, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. I do want to put one last uh, kind of uh, footnote on this, that uh, what, I've, what I have collected here it really is an innovation, uh, and I, I stand on the shoulders of others who have gone before me, um, including you know, our doctrinal statement on the church website, including even uh, uh, Pastor Matt's doctrinal statement, as well as the uh, doctrinal statement that uh, Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary holds to. And so I don't, I don't claim to, you know, that these are even necessarily all my own words, and I want to make that clear. And I'm not ashamed of that because we stand on the truth of God's word that has been received and accepted uh, throughout history. And so, um, in fact, you know, I find it a privilege to, to read those statements and to draw from them as... Uh, a way of summarizing these doctrines. So thank you for your attention this morning, and uh, I hope that in one way or another this has been edifying and helpful to our thinking, and I look forward to other opportunities in the future to do more of this with you. Enjoy a few minutes, about 10 minutes or 11 minutes of fellowship, and uh, we'll begin our service just uh, about 1045. Thank you. You're dismissed.